0: So this morning, we're actually starting a whole new sermon series, and we're going to talk about what it's like to experience God. So we're going to go from looking at the the parables of Jesus into talking a little bit more about some of the mystical aspects of our faith. So I'm going to start today just by sharing a little bit about my own personal understanding as it's growing and developing. And then next week, um, Ben Gateau is going to talk. Ben is back there. And um, he's gonna talk a little bit about his own experience of hearing God and maybe a little about how that was shaped by growing up in Kenya. And then for the third sermon, it will actually be my birthday weekend, so Ken's on for that. But then the last one, we're going to close out. Well, actually, next weekend is Ken's birthday, just so you guys know. We're within five days of each other. Okay, Ken's telling me to go on. (laughs) The last one what we're going to do, I'm telling you this because I'm really excited, actually, about this sermon series. Um, We're going to close with a talk, I think, where Caroline Kittle and I um, interview one another. So Caroline's done a lot of thinking about, you know, what it means to hear from God or to experience God, especially as it relates to mental health, and I think that that could be a really interesting conversation for her and I to have and to bring people into for us to have as a church. So I'm really excited about the series. So you know, like when Jesus left the earth you know, when he ascended or whatever, he didn't tell his followers, okay, guys, that's it. You're on your own. You know, I've left you some stories that eventually will be compiled in about 300 years or so. And so you can kind of take that and run with it. What he said to them right at the end was, look, I've got much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when the spirit of truth comes, the spirit will guide you into all truth. The spirit won't speak on its own, the spirit will only speak what it hears, and it will tell you what's yet to come. So if we believe that Jesus is actually alive, then we believe that Jesus can still speak, right? God is still speaking and giving revelation. And we're told that the way Jesus did this was by un- like unleashing the spirit of love into the world to continue guiding us and directing us. And so the root question that we're going to explore over these weeks is, okay, so how do we connect with that spirit, and what is it like? And I think it's important to start by saying, especially for those of you who maybe haven't been part of church traditions that talk about God actively speaking to people, that we believe that God communicates to people in different ways. You know, that there are 2,000 years of Christian writings and of Christian testimonies and witness about what it's like for people to experience God, right? Of different people sort of recording their own encounters and before that, even another two or three millennia of our Jewish siblings witnessing to their experiences of God. And all of those tell us that God seems to speak to humans however God can get through to us. You know, there's this really funny story in the book of Numbers that I, I should probably preach a whole sermon on it sometime. There's a guy named Balaam, and he doesn't seem to be able to understand what it is that God wants of him. So God causes his donkey, who he's riding, to just like sit down in the middle of the road and turn around and talk to him and just sort of lay things out. Right? If you've ever heard the story, it's called Balaam's ass. So, and the point of the story, I think, is that God will use whatever means necessary to try and get through to us humans. Like, there's no limitations. So, the Christian disciplines, you know, when we talk about disciplines, there are things like prayer and fasting and taking pilgrimage, observing the Sabbath, right? Having days of rest, reading the scripture and tithing and all of those things. Those are meant to do two essential things for us as followers, One, I think they're meant to help shape our character over a lifetime, that when you implement these practices and these rhythms, that they are meant to help us become more generous and loving and empathetic and restful and justice-seeking people, right? That's part of the rhythm of it. And the second thing they're meant to do is to try and connect us better to God. But it's not like a formula that you can plug yourself into, Right? It's not like you wake up every morning. Um, like I kind of grew up with the, the background of, like, well, if you get up really early and you read the Bible and you pray for an hour every single day, like eventually you're, you're definitely going like, to like hear from God. You're going to hear a word from God and things are going to be clear in your life. But it doesn't really work like that. You know, Some people, I think, do find that like, having a prayer or a reading rhythm in their life is helpful to them. If you know me, I tend to be a little less structured of a person by nature. And so I have had times in my life where I've felt more drawn to some of those formulaic ways of reading and of Ken and my wife are laughing because they know. (laughs) You know, I've had um, some different times in my life where that's been helpful. Like I've had a couple of bouts of mild depression, um, especially in my 20s where I found that having like set prayers or rhythmic prayers were more helpful for me just because I felt like I needed something to sort of hold on to as I got out of it. Um, And then I've had other times where I've woken up early just where I felt like, I don't know, just seasons where I'd get up really early and read through the Psalms or through a gospel, but they were limited, like maybe a couple of months. And I even had a season of my life where I was waking up at like 5 a.m. and going and just playing the piano and worshiping God through music, but that's not like a sustainable thing in my life. And I've learned to sort of accept the yeah. Well, especially now that I'm married, like Rachel's not going to have that. <laughs> you know, like it's like playing sort. You know, like being flexible with yourself and sort of listening to what it is that internally is being helpful to you. So I know I've talked to some people, um, various ones of you at different times. If you grew up in a more uh, evangelical background, there can sometimes be a lot of guilt, I think, associated with, like, you're not reading the Bible every day, or you're not praying every day, and so I feel like just, like, feel free to sort of relinquish that. Like, those are practices that are helpful to you, and I think are good, but they, they are, like, Ken used to call it appetite-driven. You anyway, know, like, so there'll be seasons of your life where you'll, you'll find that that's what you want, and so you lean into it, and other seasons where I think you can hold it loosely, So because of um, these ways of like opening up to hear and experience God have proved helpful to humans over time, I think these are the reasons that we commonly teach these and they experiment with us to, to see what works for us, right? So sometimes people encounter God through scripture, maybe a verse jumps out at them in a way it wouldn't otherwise, or maybe they feel like a peaceful presence surrounding them. But there's some other ways that people experience God in their lives, and those include things like having conversations with other people. I don't know if you've ever had one of those instances where you feel like you're struggling with something and then you're talking to someone about it and it's like they say the exact thing that you really needed to hear, and you feel like you're hearing from God through that person. I think that that is a legitimate way of experiencing God. Um, We can experience God through our circumstances. I think you can experience God through audible voice, But I would put some caveats on that. It doesn't seem very common. It's in the Old Testament. I don't personally know people who have done that. And I think that there's a little bit of a distinguishing marker, um, like that can be a sign of certain mental health issues as well. So I think Caroline and I will talk a little bit more about that in the last sermon. But that's a way that some people have experienced God. Through having dreams. Like that's common throughout the scripture. um, Through music, through mathematics, through nature and that feeling of like oneness and closeness to God that you feel maybe when you're standing in the woods or on a mountaintop or at the ocean. You know, that that feeling of sort of like oneness with nature where you really feel like you're part of things. You can experience God or hear from God through intuition. Just sort of that like deep, like I just know what I need to do, right? It's just this deep inner knowing. And it, it struck me as um, if you've read or seen Harry Potter... Yeah, you don't have to have to get this thing. But Rachel and I just re-watched uh, all of the movies since Christmas. And there's this one scene where Harry goes in and his potions professor hands him a little bottle of something called liquid luck. And what he tells him is, as soon as you drink this, like you'll have two hours worth of like, everything will go your way. So he has a certain circumstance where he's like, man, I could really use some luck to get this accomplished. So he drinks it down and he's just like, oh, I knew what I'm supposed to do. I need to go visit my friend Hagrid. And his friends are like, why would you do that? That makes no sense. You need to go do this. And he's like, no. You know, it just, it just feels like that's the place to be. That's where I need to go. And that's, that's kind of what I mean. It's not like liquid luck, but it's kind of like liquid luck. <laughs> I, I feel like God guides me a lot in that way. But just sort of, I just sort of know that that's what I'm supposed to do. I think God can guide us in our thoughts. And I think God can guide us in visions. I think a more accessible word for vision might be imagination. And we practice this when we do our guided meditations at the end of our service um, after every sermon. So if this is new, I could see you might be thinking something like, okay, I think I can get how God can speak in different ways. But like, how do you know it's God? Right? How do you know? And I would say the short answer is, is we don't. You know, there's there's no certainty. And the longer answer is, is I think that's going to take like a whole Sunday morning. And we will do that. So I think part of that will be in the one, I keep referring to when Caroline and I do, but as I was writing this, I was like, oh, I can't wait for that sermon. It's going to be good. I think that we'll actually spend a whole Sunday morning talking through that. How do we know when it's God? How do we do some discernment? So for this morning, for just this first sermon, I think the takeaway I want us to have is that in Judeo-Christian tradition, God speaks in a lot of ways, and those ways are not limited even to the ones that I named, right? God can speak outside of the box. And so for me, personally, what's it like to experience God um, invites a more personal answer. So I thought, I'll just, I'll just kind of share. And it always feels a little bit vulnerable to share, you know, like what's it feel like when you experience God? Um, But for me, I would say physically, I often experience what I interpret to be God as a feeling of like just deep, unexplainable peace. You know, I believe that God is always present and around us, but I think that there are times when we're made more aware of God's presence. And so sometimes I even feel like a strange sensation in my mouth, which is not common, I don't think. Um, when I feel like God is speaking to me or when I feel like God's presence is particular, like I'm particularly aware of it. And I was talking to somebody about this last night because it was really interesting to me. About 10 years ago, I had to go on um, pain meds just for a little thing that I had had. So they put me on Vicodin, just one stint of it. And it was interesting to me that Vicodin gave me that same sensation. It did, like it was a mouth thing. It was like this weird... And it, did, it just made me wonder if my practices of prayer and meditation and silence are activating, like, a similar section of my brain that the pain meds activate. Which, like, that's not the worst thing in the world, right? And, you know, there's been studies of Buddhist and Christian um, nuns and monks that have shown that meditation really does do things, like it slows down your heart rate, and it can stimulate parts of your brain that make humans feel connection. Right? It can make you feel this like at-oneness with the universe. It can help make you feel this sort of inner peace. And I would say that just because prayer can train the brain, I think, to function in ways that help us to access those parts, make us feel peaceful and interconnected with the world, it doesn't mean it's not from God. that makes sense? I know Ken, he wrote a book about this about 10 years ago. I think he would say, we're wired to connect with God that maybe we're wired for mystical connection. And perhaps this is a wiring that is God-given from a God who wants relationship with us. You know, and that it's simply a matter of learning to use our inborn wiring to plug into this spirit of love that's all around us and that meditation and other practices can help facilitate that, that sort of innate connection. Right? So in my body, that's what it feels like for me, but other people have different feelings. Some of them describe feeling a little bit shaky. Some cry when they feel the presence of God. They just weep. Some people, if you notice, their eyelids will flutter just a little bit. Or sometimes people will feel excessively hot or just have this real weird feeling of like overwhelming gratefulness. And these seem to be really common, like physical, emotional responses to activating parts of the brain that I think are meant to help us feel more connected to the divine. And some people don't feel anything. And I think that's perfectly okay, too. And it probably has more to do with how your brain is organized than with your spiritual abilities, you know, like what parts of your brain are sort of being activated in that. Now, I experience God in my mind in lots of ways. And I think perhaps one of the most liberating thoughts for me was allowing for that possibility that God could speak through my thoughts and through my imagination. And again, there's another good Harry Potter um, scene. <laughs> Forgive me, I love those. Um, Rachel and I were just re-watching the last two movies, and there is this lovely scene in the last movie. I, I'll try not to give away any spoilers because I know some of our youth are reading through these, so I'll, I'll just say it like that. And in the scene, Harry is passed out, All right? So he's, he's passed out and in that space of being passed out, he's having a conversation with a former teacher of his, the headmaster, Dumbledore. And at the end of that conversation in his head, it goes like this. Harry says, tell me one last thing. Is this real? Or is this happening inside of my head? It says, Dumbledore beamed at him and his voice sounded loud and strong in Harry's ears even through the bright mist that was descending again, obscuring his figure. Of course it's happening in your head, Harry, but why on earth should that mean it's not real? Of course it's happening in your head, but why on earth should that mean it's not real? Now, if you know J.K. Rowling, who's the author, that she's a Scottish Presbyterian. And this, I think, this is like part of her mystical side that is very much at play in this scene. And I like how she uses the image, too, of like fog coming and going, because she describes this bright mist that is ascending and descending over Dumbledore. So there's an Irish Catholic mystic that I've been reading named John O'Donohue, and he compares experiencing God to like looking at a fog that's obscuring the top of a mountain. So I'm just going to read you what he writes. He says, the fog is halfway down the mountain. So if you can picture in your mind a mountain with fog halfway down He's saying there's the top of the mountain, but you can't actually see that. The top of the mountain is concealed inside the fog. With the mind, you can't penetrate the blanket of cover. But with the imagination, you can actually sense the presence that is actually there, but you can't see, right? So you get like the imagination is filling in for what's obscured. And all the time with the light and the cloud and the rain and the mist, he says a whole kind of narrative of presence is unfolding Hiding itself and it's emerging. And I thought, man, that really is what experiencing God is a little bit like. I think that's what hearing from God is like for me. You know, oftentimes I know like what I want to hear from God if I'm really trying to hear something is like I want to hear about grand things, right? I want her to tell me what is coming up ahead. I want to see the whole mountain clear as day. I want to know what my next five years, 10 years, 15, 20 look like. I want to at least have like a direction so I know where to point. But so often the spirit does not speak to us of those like impressive long-term happenings especially filled with any kind of detail or clarity but she usually speaks softly and with some haziness some hiddenness most often giving us like one step at a time in the darkness you know there are people in the church tradition who we sometimes call prophets and they sometimes i think get a grander sense of the larger moves of god And sometimes we can intuit when they might be right. But most often, experiencing God is like following a dimly lit trail. It's a little like looking at a foggy mountain. Knowing that there's a mountain, it's there. We can imagine it in our minds, but we don't exactly know the contours of it. We don't exactly know the height or the shape or the color, but we know generally it's there. So there's a story in the Hebrew Bible in 1 Kings 19 that's often used to describe the voice of God. And in this story, there's a prophet, his name is Elijah, and he's running for his life. It sounds like a Disney movie, but there's an evil king and an evil queen who are out to get him because they want him dead, and he's been calling out their unjust practices. Right? So he's running for his life, and during this journey of running away from the evil king and queen, at one point he just sits down under a tree and he tells God, I want to die. Like, I'm just, I'm sick of this. I'm exhausted and I'm hungry and I want to die. And I'm afraid that I'm going to get caught and killed regardless of how long I run. So just let me go. And then as the story goes, God helps Elijah um, take a really deep nap. And then we're told that God sends a messenger or an angel to give him some food and some water, right? Just enough for Elijah to feel maybe refreshed enough to keep going. And so 40 days later, Elijah comes to a cave in a mountain and it says that he spends the night there. And in his mind, like in his thoughts, he hears God ask him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah replies to God, and I, I imagine with like some exasperation, Elijah's like, dude, I have been passionate for you, God. I have been zealous, but my people, they have like given up their relationship with you and they've torn down their worship spaces and they've killed all of the other prophets like me with a sword. And here I am alone. I'm the only one left and they're seeking my life too to take it away. Like, you know why I'm here. And so God says to Elijah, go and stand at the mouth of the cave because my presence is going to pass by. And it says, now there was a great wind and it was so strong that it was splitting mountains and it was breaking rocks in pieces, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. And after the wind was an earthquake, but God wasn't in the earthquake. And then there was a fire and God wasn't in the fire. And then after the wind and the earthquake and the fire, were told the sound of just sheer silence. And then when Elijah heard the silence, he wrapped his face and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And then there was a voice that said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah. Elijah repeats the same thing. I've been passionate for you, God. My people have forsaken you. They've torn down their worship places. They're killing all the prophets, and I alone am left, and they're going to kill me too. And then God says to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king, anoint son as king, and anoint Elisha to take your place. Now, what we usually and I think rightly pull from this story is the idea that God is so often found in the silence, you know, in that space between the drama and the noise, not in these like loud, flashy, grandiose gestures, but in the stillness. You know, God's voice came through even before all of that, though, right? Elijah was hearing God's voice even before the wind and the earthquake and the fire. He heard God say, go stand at the mouth of the cave, But it seems like the awareness of God and the awareness of the presence of God, not just the voice, but the actual living presence that was surrounding him, came in the form of silence for him. And I don't think that's like a prescription for being aware of God, but it is something that many other people of faith have noticed that we can be aware of God in lots of situations, loud and quiet, like you can be aware of God at work, you know, like in your classroom if you're a teacher or whatever, but there is something about silence that seems to facilitate that kind of awareness of the closeness of God. You know, some of you guys are coming off of having your kids at home with you three days this week. Any of you? A few? I know some of you probably got childcare, but... I thought, you know, the idea of finding silence in your life might feel a little bit laughable this week. As I was writing this, I thought, oh man, it might have been a long week. But I don't think that finding silence needs to be like a big, long production. You know, but you can find a little space of silence in the car, you know, where you just kind of open yourself to having an awareness of God being near you. It could be like you steal a minute in the bathroom, as I know many parents with young kids do. (laughs) Just go and lock yourself in there for a few minutes and just take a little moment. Breathe. Keep it real, right? It doesn't need to be like you need to go away on a mountaintop for a week. And then there are seasons of life, just give yourself grace, where it's just going to be harder than others and that that's okay too. The other thing that I notice in the story about Elijah is that God gives Elijah practical next steps that can be taken, right? Just practical next steps. Before he even goes to the cave, God gives Elijah sleep and food and water, right? He's giving him his basics, carry on. And I think there's times in our lives when we just need God to take care of our basic needs, right? And then after the 40 more days, and Elijah's exhausted and hungry, and God says, okay, I know you've been on the run for your life. And I know that you're scared and exhausted and I'm hearing the desperation in your voice. So here's your next step. Go to Damascus, anoint these two guys and then anoint Elisha to be your successor. Like I hear you, here are your next things. But the direction from God doesn't let Elijah know whether or not these newly anointed kings are actually gonna rule. Doesn't know whether or not they're gonna be good. He doesn't know whether or not those actions are gonna start a war whether those men are going to act justly. God doesn't tell Elijah whether or not Elisha, the man who's going to replace him, will actually complete what Elijah hoped to accomplish. Right? Elijah does not get a grand view of the entire mountain. All God tells him is the next step. Right? Just, it's like laying a crumb out, just the next step. And I think that is most often what our own Christian path is like. And we can wonder things, like, what's going to happen? You know, like, something's going on in my life. How is my family going to respond? How is this going to turn out? Are things going to get better or worse for me and my job? And sometimes I think God can clue us in or give us some, like, wisdom to deduct natural outcomes. But in my experience, mostly given just the simple, small next step. And there's a famous psalm that says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And I I know it from an Amy Grant song. If you guys remember that old song from the 80s, by the by, Amy Grant is LGBTQ affirming, just for those of you who care. You know, the gospel of John tells us that the word is God. You know, and then goes on to tell us that the word is Jesus, right? When you talk about the word of God as a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, it's not necessarily talking about like the scripture. It's talking about this connecting aspect of God, however you imagine God right connecting with the divine spirit of love if that's the most helpful and it's connecting just for that next step guidance and i think it's this image of the lamp at our feet that this idea that our christian path is sort of shrouded in some darkness and hiddenness but that our relationship with that light is what helps us find our way forward i don't believe that humans that we have like one set path for our lives I don't think that God has like one will for us and that if we miss it, then we're off God's path. I think our lives are sort of open and that by depending on God to sort of elucidate our surroundings that we can make better decisions for our lives. Right? So we seek to connect with God so we can kind of see what's around us and see if maybe there is um, one option that's a little bit better for each small step. And that as we seek to connect with God in these different ways and to hear from God, that it's like we're casting our lanterns about for a little bit surer footing, like we're never going to see the whole mountain, but just enough to sort of be like, okay, that looks like that's a safe path. And I think it might sound scary to imagine the Christian path as being like surrounded by darkness or mist or fog. But the thing about darkness, spiritually speaking, is that it's not all bad. A few years ago, I I went and I did just like a word study, which is like a super nerdy thing from more of my evangelical upbringing where you go and you find like where a word is used every time in the Bible and just see how it's used. And that can actually be great. One of them that I looked at actually was deep darkness because it was a little bit fascinating to me. And throughout the Bible, God is actually found in darkness. That when Abraham and God are making a lasting covenant, covenant together, I think that's in Genesis 12. They're surrounded by clouds and thick darkness. When Moses receives the Ten Commandments up on Mount Sinai, he's surrounded by clouds and thick darkness. Elijah is finding God's presence just outside the cave at night in the dark. Two of the Psalms say that clouds and thick darkness surround the throne of God. When Jesus resurrects, Jesus is resurrecting in the dark, in a cave. You ever think about that? Jesus is wrapped in linen. If we believe the story of the resurrection, then he sat up in the dark, stood up in the dark, let his linens fall off him, was probably butt naked in the dark. All the while, there's a big stone on the cave. And I think the thought there is like, resurrection always begins in the dark. It's vulnerable, but the shoots always come up, right? Like shoots in the spring are always coming up from the dark ground, right? Like we always sleep and then we wake up. There's something about the darkness. Life begins in the darkness of ground. Life begins in the darkness of the womb. And so this idea is that the presence and the majesty of God can actually be found in the darkness, right? That the lantern of God's spirit is leading us through that, like the writers of scripture are trying to tell us that we're surrounded by the presence of God, even in the darkness, even when it doesn't feel like it or seem like it. So I would just say, for me, experiencing God is most like that. And it's hard to like articulate it. I feel like it, when I was writing the sermon, I was like, it feels like a little bit wishy-washy and all around, but like, that's just kind of the mystical element of experiencing God. And mostly things are just feeling like, what's the next step I should take? And how can I learn to decide whether or not what I'm experiencing or feeling in that leading is actually God or is it me? And is there room for that to be okay when I get that wrong? So with that, let's go into our meditation time. And we often spend about three minutes either in silence or some guided meditation. I thought we'd probably spend more time in the silence this morning since... We talked about Elijah just experiencing the presence of God in silence. And so that's what I'd like to do, and I'll, I'll keep track of the time. Just relax. If you want, you can picture God however you imagine God, or the spirit of love, if that's more helpful to you, as maybe sitting beside you or in front of you. And we'll just ask God to help make us more aware of this presence, the spirit of love, and to pay attention to what's going on in our minds and in our bodies as we sit here for the three minutes. All right, so let's just go ahead. Holy Spirit, help us to experience you and feel you now. Spirit, we ask that you would rest on us through this coming week. Amen. I want to say, too, like if you feel like you don't feel anything, that's totally okay, and it's very normal, too. But some of these practices of silence and meditation that practiced over time are meant to help train our brains. It actually is doing something with the internal aspect of the parts of the brain that we're accessing. So it's one of the reasons when Ken and I started Blue Ocean, um, he had the idea actually of like, well, let's make this part of the service so that it becomes at least a weekly rhythm for us so that we get better at this. So I just want to say, hold that like non-judgmentally on yourself, that that's totally okay. All right.